I V M. Welcome to episode 45 of the Edges and Sledges Cricket Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ashwin, recording from Cincinnati, Ohio. This week, we have a very special episode. We have a guest joining us who we are big fans of her work. She is an expert on all things women's cricket, has been covering it for quite some time. We've been reading her articles for a while and often mention them on our episodes and link out to them on Twitter. So I'm excited to have Onesha Ghosh joining us. She's a journalist at ESPN Cricket Info. Onesha, thank you for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Ashwin, for the elaborate introduction and pleasure being here. All right. So as we get started, uh, why don't you just take a few minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about you and your uh, and what you do currently and your experience with uh, with the game of cricket? Well, uh, well, I drink a lot of coffee at office, and when not drinking coffee, I try my best to work on women's cricket because I feel women's cricket needs um, more voices and needs a lot of people to remain committed to the game and try and bring out the stories because there are stories to be told and the more the merrier. That's my opinion. So I drink coffee at ESPN Cricket for and work uh, at the desk and when not working, I try and uh, go about uh, looking for stories on women's cricket, not just on India, but on Indian women's cricketers, but also those from other countries as well. That's great. Yeah, we've we've read some really interesting profiles and some really cool backgrounds you've written about some of the cricketers. So let's let's get started. Let's chat a little bit. I want to start with a bit of a broad question, but just about the overall sort of state of the the women's game. So as I think about it as a as a cricket fan myself, having grown up through the '90s and early 2000s. You know, the the reality is my memory of most of the women's game through the '80s, '90s, etc. was always that. It was dominated heavily by England and Australia. I think right in the middle, New Zealand started becoming more of a force. But some of the other sides like South Africa, India, West Indies, Pakistan, etc. weren't really making their impact probably until about, let's say, 10 years ago. I would, I think still those three sides, England, Australia, New Zealand, are the only ones to have won a World Cup. But I think 2005 is my first memory of India making the World Cup final. And that kind of came to the limelight. But then again, it drifted away a little. So talk to us a little about you know the last... Uh, the, the state of the game in the last 20 to 30 years and how you've seen it evolve? Well, I, I'm, first of all, I am not as old as you know this timeline that you've mapped out for me. Uh, but yes, I have been following the women's game for uh, quite some time now. And uh, the biggest shot in the arm, I would say, has come over the past decade. Yes, the 2005 World Cup was huge for women's cricket in India because uh, in about a year's time, we did have... Um, the Women's Cricket Association of India uh, relinquishing women's cricket, the duties the sh- they were shoulder of women's cricket to the BCCI and the ICC made it mandatory for all boards to take over women's cricket and uh, make it a point to give it the kind of infrastructural support uh, that it required at that point and uh, you know, take it step by step uh, towards making it uh, a part of mainstream discourse uh, in the cricketing uh, in, in the larger cricketing circuit so yeah 2000 the 2005 world cup was huge not just for india but for uh, for world uh, world cricket as far as the women's uh, game is concerned but over the past decade with the uh, emergence of the wbbl it has completely uh, changed uh, the complexion of the women's game because if you look at the kind of uh, cricket that women have been playing, the whole power hitting game, being at the forefront of uh, 
of uh, narrative on women's cricket. I think the Women's Big Bash League four years ago, it came into existence uh, in 2015-16 and ever since, ever since we've seen how the the league has gone from strength to strength and so has the women's game at large because uh, we've had the best of cricketers from across uh, the world taking part in this particular league and they have sort of the, the organizers cricket australia have made it a point to give it an identity uh, that, that merits a brand of cricket that has been at the center of this particular league cricket australia have made sure that that brand of cricket is publicized in a particular manner so that it's able to stand alone uh, and stand on its feet. And as, as we saw this, this time around, uh, the first ever Women's Big Bash League standalone final was held in Australia. And, and the knockouts themselves were, uh, I think, they had some of the best cricketing action ever on display, if you would remember uh, the games between uh, Sydney Thunder and... Um, Brisbane Heat, who went on to win their maiden title in about a week's time. And of course, we had uh, Melbourne Renegades taking on Sydney Sixers. Um, I think uh, the narrative around women's cricket has changed ever since the inception of the Women's Big Bash League. And soon after, we had the KSL, the Kia Super League, uh, follow suit. And they have, uh, England cricket have done fairly well, although there have been talks around uh, the league being disbanded. So we do not know, you know, there, there is a lot of uncertainty around uh, the 100 tournament uh, as of now. So we do not quite know which way uh, women's cricket is going to head as far as England cricket uh, are concerned and also the Kia Super League, League is concerned. But uh, one can only hope that it heads in a direction which is sort of aligned with the larger picture that the WBBL, that Cricket Australia envisage for women's cricket because... You have to understand one thing, Ashwin. Um, they are the drivers. Cricket Australia, I mean, they are leagues ahead of each and every other board in terms of setting the standard of professionalism, uh, be it in the form of contracts. They were among the first to be uh, to have introduced contracts. And, of course, the ECB came on board uh, soon after. It took a while for the Indian Cricket Board to understand the need for uh, introducing a certain degree of professionalism in the women's game. And once contracts came into existence in 2015-16, I think the standard of game, uh, the standard of cricket has also sort of uh, gone up. And one can only expect that the more professional the approach towards treating or administering uh, women's game gets, the quality and the standard of women's cricket will also improve, as we have seen over the past 10 years. I think that's great. Thank you so much. That's very insightful. I want to ask a couple of questions on some things you said. So the first is, you said Cricket Australia is sort of the stalwart of how to manage from an administrative standpoint. And really, I think, I find it interesting that you're saying the WBBL was a little bit of a, a turning point in the game. What, what do you think about, what do you think it is about the Women's Big Bash that ended up making it a turning point? Do you think it was more about the the sort of bringing some formal uh, cricket to it? Do you think it was about the money that got infused into the sport? Or do you think it was just about the style of power hitting and the game getting a little more aggressive? I would say it was a mix of, it was a mix of more or less everything. And the sheer emphasis on giving women a different platform, because you have to understand the nuances 
uh, that make women's cricket what it is is starkly different to the men's game, and you cannot simply keep on um, comparing men's cricket to uh, to women's cricket because there are inst- intrinsic differences which lie at the heart of uh, of men's cricket and also uh, at the core uh, of women's cricket. So, if you sort of um, assume this one position where you refuse to look at women's cricket from a lens which you probably used to view or enjoy um, men's cricket, then it gets really difficult for one to sort of uh, understand or appreciate the nuances that make women's cricket uh, entertaining, enjoyable, and of course something of a commodity that you would, somewhat of a commodity that you would want to pay for. Um, that was something that I believe Cricket Australia were able to understand thanks to their foresight and they invested greatly in terms of finances uh, to set that pathway that has gone on to um, producing players like Ashley Gardner, who, mind you, won Australia, um, the ICC Women's World T20 uh, title earlier in November last year. So you have so many of these uh, players in Australia, these youngsters, come up through the pathway and via the uh, via the WBBL route, so it's not just you know these stars from across the world that you have come over and play uh, for a good couple of months, uh, you know, in this showpiece event. But you do have the domestic pool of talent being cons- constantly nurtured, being constantly put under the scanner, so that uh, the selectors are able to scout the best of talents uh, from that uh, from that available pool. So that is one thing which I believe has contributed greatly towards increasing or bettering the quality of cricket that we have come to see from Australia, especially uh, in terms of the bench strength that they have gone on to build. Uh, we have Ashley Gardner, Sophie Molyneux, um, Nicola Carey, mind you, uh, one of the one of the stars of uh, the first semi-final in the WBBL this year. You have so many of them. Georgia Wareham, the, the young spinner who did immensely well during the World T20. So when you have an uninterrupted supply of talent as Cricket Australia have managed to put together over the past four seasons, thanks to the, the, the WBBL, and of course they have the Women's National Cricket League, the WNCL, which sort of um, helps put all these talents together. I think that is one of the reasons uh, WBBL has been successful. They have Cricket Australia have made it a point to focus as much on as much on getting superstars on board as to making sure that the talent that at the grassroots are developed and constantly nurtured, and the selectors have a robust pool of talent to choose from. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So it's you know it's great to see this. At least the Australian board has really stepped up. To, to try to keep furthering the game. Let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about the Indian side. So as I think about my interaction with Indian women's cricket, I think the most media coverage, et cetera, that I remember seeing for the first time was probably in the 2017 uh, heartbreaking World Cup final where we fell nine runs short. But I don't remember transparently before that seeing so much excitement and involvement from the Indian media. So do you think the 2017 World Cup and then the 2018 T20 World Cup where we won all our matches in the group stages. Do you think those were those have been kind of turning points and Indian women's cricket is now starting to get to the next level? Well, 
most certainly, I mean, India started off their campaign with a bang. Uh, what a what a tournament opener was that against England. Smriti Mandana, of course, with that century, and Poonam Rao, Deepthi Sharma. You had these uh, these youngsters coming to the fore. All of them on were on television, on primetime television here in India. So for them to be able to perform the way they did in the tournament opener against hosts England, mind you, and uh, England at that point uh, were uh, ranked higher than an Indian uh, than the Indian side, and India had to make make it to the uh, ICC Women's uh, World Cup via via the qualifiers route. It wasn't direct qualification. So I think uh, there was a certain degree of I wouldn't I wouldn't call it call it lack of expectation. But India were the underdogs. Nobody literally saw them, you know, make the semi-finals, but they did. And a large part of it was down to the visibility that the ICC sort of made sure uh, was made available. Because as part of their agenda to towards promoting women's cricket, uh, they made all of all of the matches. Every match was available for viewing either on television or via live streaming. And this was a commitment on the part of uh, ICC towards. Uh, growing women's game across the world. So I think that worked really well because uh, if you have to go by the numbers, more than 180 million people around the world uh, are believed to have uh, watched the ICC Women's uh, 2070 World Cup and, and the hashtag WWC17, that sort of uh, caught on with time and on, on the web too, on social media. Twitter collaborated with the ICC and we had these captains' emojis, Mithali Raj and Aradhani Van. Kirk or um, a Meg Lanning popping up on your tweets. Uh, if you would tweet with their uh, names, hashtag in any of your tweets. So I think there was a consolidated effort, a concerted effort on the part of uh, the ICC to make sure that they go all guns blazing in terms of putting together their resources, not just on television, but also on the web to maximizing the reach. And it did show because we had record-breaking numbers in terms of um, um, the WWC17 hashtag being the most tweeted hashtag for a women's sport final. And of course, there was apparently a five times surge in India and, and almost eight times in South Africa uh, in terms of uh, viewing numbers. So visibility is a key factor towards making people believe in the commodity that they want to sell, that the ICC wants to sell. And if you're not able to want something, I, I'm not sure if you would want to believe in the genuinity of it, in, in the promise that it uh, oozes and the promise uh, that it promises to deliver on. So in that regards, yes, the WWC uh, 1-7 tournament, the ICC Women's World Cup in 2017 was definitely a watershed at the moment, not just for uh, the Indian women's team, because they made it to the uh, finals. This was not the first time they made it to the finals, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, on your show. They had done so in 2005 as well, but it wasn't telecast. It wasn't made available on television in India. So there was no means uh, for uh, viewers who were probably aware of the tournament going on in South Africa in 2005 and India making it to the final. They didn't have an option to watch it, but in 2017, they did, which is why the narrative that was shaping up on social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's a, that sort of uh, aided the entire process of garnering uh, attention and interest around the tournament. And of course, uh, the brand of cricket that we saw, you had Van Eker. She bowled this amazing spell uh, 
without considering any runs, I, I guess she took four wickets. Um, Smriti Mandana, of course, uh, all of 21 at that point, are going on to hit a 90 and a century in the first two games. Mithali Raj had a prolific run. She kept breaking one record after another. And that 171 knocked out did sort of uh, break uh, not just uh, the numbers, the records, but also did help shatter a few stereotypes about women's cricket and women in sport. So, yes, it was a watershed moment for not just women's cricket, but for women's sport in general, if you, if you were to look at it from a wider perspective. Yeah, that's great. And again, I know from myself and many who have been fans in the world of cricket, it, that was definitely a moment where it started to come more to the forefront. So, and one of the other things you mentioned that we've chatted a little about on our show is this catch-22, right? Where broadcasters say, well, there's probably not enough money in the women's game and not enough eyeballs. Well, of course, there aren't enough eyeballs because you didn't give people a chance to watch it. So somewhere somebody needs to draw a line in the sand, make the investment. And I'm personally really happy to see that that has been happening in the last few years. And hopefully we can uh, we can see that continue. I mean, yes, post, uh, post Women's World Cup 2017, I think um, a few of the boards have sort of gone out of their way to make sure that even if there wasn't arrangements uh, available for a live broadcast, they did live stream the matches. So that's definitely um, a plus. You know, something is better than nothing. At least viewers who are interested in watching the game will be able to watch them um, on on the web. So that's that's definitely um, a positive that I think has come out uh, in the wake of the Women's World Cup in 2017. And now for a message from this week's sponsor of the Edgesons Legends Cricket Podcast, Anchor. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When the three of us started on this journey, we really didn't know where to begin, but the solution was all in one place, Anchor. It's free, it's easy, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. You can record, you can edit, and best of all, they'll distribute your podcast everywhere, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, you can even make some money from your podcast by recording ads just like this one. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Thanks for listening. Okay, let me ask you a little bit about the the Indian side as it stands right now. And if I'm to think about it, you know, there's no, there seems to be a lot of quality batters. If you think about anybody from Smriti Mandana, who you mentioned, who's been on an absolutely incredible run for the last few yeah. years, to Jemima Rodriguez making her name, Harman Preet, Mithali, there seem to be really strong batters. On From a bowling standpoint, you have, you know, Poonam Yadav, who you mentioned, I think, has had the year of her life from a spinning yeah. standpoint. And then there's some other great spinners as well. But, you know, as I think about it, other than Jhulan Goswami, I can't really think of quick bowlers either in the team or sort of right at the edges of the team that have made it to the forefront. So this Indian team that's found success has done so largely on the back of batters and spinners, which is not dissimilar to the Indian men's team from the kind of 80s and 90s where they weren't really breakthrough fast bowlers like we're seeing today. What do you, why do you think that is? And do, do you see kind of, are there young quick bowlers uh, on the edges that are trying to make their ways into the team and we should expect to see them soon? Well, one of the uh, one of the harsh realities, which I think uh, most people familiar with women's cricket in India would agree with, is uh, it takes a lot for a fast bowler to sustain themselves over a period of time, and it so happens that in a bit to extending or stretching one's career, many a times young fast bowlers tend to sort of switch to spin bowling, 
if you um, look at a Harman Preet Gore, for instance, she started out as a as a medium pacer, but ever since she started finding her groove in batting, she decided to switch into uh, bowling spin because she did realize that if she has to sustain um, herself as a cricketer, the workload that comes with bowling pace may not be conducive to extending one's career beyond the certain limit. So many a times in the domestic circuit, it does happen that young fast bowlers sort of give up on bowling pace uh, after a certain point in time because of the dearth of opportunities or, as I mentioned, the sheer workload that comes with bowling pace. The other thing that we have to sort of understand is India have, as you mentioned, have relied traditionally relied on spin and their spinners have delivered. But if you look, try and look beyond the Chulan Goswami, there aren't many that you can sort of place your finger on and rely on in terms of them being able to deliver um, on a consistent basis. We do have um, Shikha Pandey, an immensely talented pace bowling all-rounder who has sort of done reasonably well for the team but has her has had her share of ups and downs uh, uh, as well in the recent past. We did have a few young fast bowlers uh, uh, in Indian women's cricket uh, comfortable for a couple of years ago and they have sort of made their way back into the side, you know, in the, in the likes of Amansi Joshi, Apuja Vastrakar, Sukanya Parida from Bengal. A commonality that has somewhat hindered their progress is the way their injuries have been managed or the lack of management around their injuries. Pooja Vastakar, for instance, um, there have been questions around her domestic workload, um, especially in the build-up to her um, international debut. She was expected to debut much earlier than she actually did, but that was largely down to um, how her injuries sort of hindered her rise from the domestic uh, from a promising uh, promising youngster in the domestic circuit to uh, someone who merits an India cap. Same goes with Amansi Joshi. She performed immensely well in the limited uh, in the limited opportunities she got during the 2017 World Cup. Picked up a picked up an injury and was sidelined from international cricket, cricket of any kind for a for a good 10 11 months. So. The question is, how is it that the board has been sort of managing the workload of these young pacers and their injuries as well? Because we have to understand that the socioeconomic background that these players come from doesn't quite enable them for the education, A, that is required for um, a young female fast bowler to take care of themselves, especially in the event of an injury. Second, they may not have, not all of them are contracted with the BCCI, but the National, Acad uh, National Cricket Academy has, has a robust support system in place. And more often than not, these young female cases have, have been treated well at the, at the NCA, but do we have a regular process of monitoring the workload and the injuries of these players in place? That is the question that perhaps the board needs to answer and ponder because, yes, a large part of the dearth of young pacers who can 
possibly, you know, look to take over the reins from Ajulan Goswami whenever she decides to hang her boots in the in the only format she plays in ODI cricket. Do we really have a replacement for Ajulan Goswami in place besides, say, Shekha Pandey? Not really, but there are these young paces. We have the the uh, the young Arundhati Reddy from Hyderabad who's done reasonably well over a period of time. Uh, she was part of the T20 uh, World T20 side in, uh, in the, the tour of the, the, the Caribbean. But yeah, uh, at the end of the day, it it sort of boils down to how these youngsters are monitored, not just in terms of preparing them for the rigors of international cricket, but also dealing with the mental side of things, because more often than not, injuries is something that they may not be handled the way these youngsters need to handle without the kind of support that they merit, without the kind of support that such injuries require from the board. So I think that's something the the BCCI perhaps have uh, taken uh, an assessment, made an assessment of in the recent past, especially uh, in the wake of Mansi Joshi's uh, injury. And uh, now that uh, Pooja Vastakar is out out of action with an ACL surgery that she underwent uh, a couple of months ago, I think she will be missing out on uh, on international cricket for a good uh, couple of months, maybe. So yeah, these are the factors which sort of come together and compound uh, to the woes, uh, make the make uh, the dearth of uh, young fast bowlers all the more pronounced. And of course, given our spinners have done well and the quality of spin bowling has consistently progressed, which is why there have been decisions where we've backed, India have backed their spinners ahead of playing a third seamer, even on pitches where um, conditions are believed to have been in favor of pace bowling. But such as such has been the, uh, the might and the efficacy of the spinners that more often than not they've delivered the goods for India, which is probably another reason where reason why pacers seem to have been relegated uh, to the background and spinners have automatically been on the forefront. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, for now, of course, uh, Jilin Goswami continues to be going on, going really strong. I think. You know, India just wrapped up our series versus New Zealand with two back-to-back wins and one loss, and they're winning the series two to one. Uh, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you one quick question on that one. What was your most memorable moment from the the three-match ODI series before they head on to do the twenty T20s next week against New Zealand? Ah, the most memorable moment. Hmm. I would I would say you know the partnership between uh, Smriti Mandana and Jamima Rodriguez. It's sort of. I mean, I personally did not see a statement of intent from India taking the fo- taking the form that it did, and I think a large part of it came through that partnership. But also, uh, Deepti Sharma, she played a vital part in uh, making sure that India get get an uh, unassailable two zero lead by the end of the second ODI because there was this phase there, there was this phase of play where uh, New Zealand had been doing reasonably well in the in the first ODI, and she affected this run out um, and also um, took the wicket of uh, Susie Bates. So she 
removed Susie Bates and Sophie Devine, the New Zealand openers, uh, within in the blink of an eye, and I think that sort of set the set the tone for uh, the Indian women's team and uh, set the tone for India to go out all guns blazing and uh, and uh, clinch the series in the manner they did. But uh, at the same time, uh, given it's New Zealand, you cannot push over, mind you. So. I was personally expecting them to um, come back and come back pretty strong because they have some of some of the best batsmen in the world, some of the best pacers, and of course the off spinner in Lee Kasparik. So, given the kind of variety they have in their bowling attack and also the sheer power that their batting lineup comprise, in the likes of Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, and of course, given the fact that they were all coming off a terrific runner from runner form in the WBBL, so. One, were, one was sort of expecting them to bounce back, um, and they did so emphatically in the third ODI. They averted a white, white wash, and they made sure that heading into the T20I series, which, mind you, is going to be a different ball game altogether, because they're talking New Zealand, and they've, they've had more players playing in the WBBL and the, and the KSL than us Indians, but I think the scales are going to be somewhat tipped in favor of New Zealand heading into the series. Great. So, Anisha, as we wrap up, really quickly from you, final question. How long until we're going to see a women's IPL in India? Well, I'm going to stick my neck out and say maybe six months. I mean, why not? Let's let's set the ball, uh, get the ball rolling this, this year itself. However, logistically, that may sound a bit challenging, but it's not impossible, mind you, uh, the BCCI may. To start off with a four-team uh, women's IPL or an IPL style, if we uh, may put it that way. So it doesn't really require a lot of thinking to be invested in making a women's domestic league in India uh, happen. So it can happen as soon as, as early as uh, March, April 2019. However, given the administrative soup that the BCCI seem to land themselves in more often than not these days. Uh, it will require somebody from within the administration to put their hand up and take the kind of responsibility that is required to not just getting the stars. Again, we go, go back to the dis- discussion that we had at the beginning of this uh, of this episode. It's not just about getting top drawer um, players from across the world, and Alice Perry, Sophie Devine, Stefani Taylor on board and make up the starting 11s uh, for these four sides I'm talking about. They would need to sort of picture, they would need to plan this domestic league in a manner which also helps uh, inject enthusiasm, inject a sense of competition in the domestic players as well, so that at the end of the day, the larger aim of making women's cricket, or making the health of women's cricket in India more uh, virile, more robust, that aim is met, that target is met, that met. That should be the ultimate aim of organizing women's IPL, in my opinion, and it could start as early as March, April 2019, or we may have to wait for um, the end of the World T20 next year, the T20 World Cup next year in Australia. Absolutely. So I, for one, certainly hope you're right. I hope to see one in 2019, maybe 2020 at the latest. Anisha, thank you for making the time to join us. It was great having a good conversation with you. 
uh, for the rest of everybody else that wraps up episode 45 of the edges and sledges cricket podcast thanks as always for listening in you can find us on social media twitter facebook instagram at one tip one hand the number one tip number one hand send us in your questions thoughts and feedback you can listen to us wherever you get podcasts itunes spotify google play etc we love to hear from you and we will see you in about a week's time so anisha thanks again for joining us on the show Hello, 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 everybody. It's been another great week on the IBM Podcast Network. On What the Hell Navya, Jaya Bachchan, Shwetananda, and Navya herself dish out stories from their childhood. They discuss tough love between parents and their kids. On Pesa Vesa, Anupam talks to Bhaman Irani, President-elect Kredai, and Chairman and MD at Rustamji. They discuss the concept of buy versus rent and how to approach buying property in 2022. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus is joined by Meghnath and comedian Shad Shafi. They discuss their opinions on the ongoing Congress presidential elections and Prashant Kishore embarking on a padyatra. On The Life Manifesto, Zarina narrates a story that advocates that stress and emotions are not to be controlled but must be beautifully managed. And on the Filter Coffee podcast, Karthik is joined by Yashraj Akashi. Senior Ambassador of the TEDx program and curator of TEDx Gateway. They discuss the origin story of TED and its franchise model. Guys, go to our website, ivmpodcast.com. You can check out the merch store, also links to all of our social media stuff, which is at IVM Podcast. Also, do check out our YouTube channels. We have a number of channels with many of your favorite shows available as full video podcasts. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors this week, Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tails, and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thank you so much for making this possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from. Working Monday to Friday glued to your chair making you feel dull? Worry not. Get your 5-minute weekly dose of travel around the world with postcards from nowhere. Join me every Thursday as I explore the strange, obscure and fascinating parts of the world and bring out facets of travel you may not have thought of before. You can find us on the IBM Podcast app, website or wherever you get your podcast from.